bow our heads for a word of prayer. <laughs> Father, we ask again your direction, your wisdom. Uh, Lord, we are dealing with topics that will result in the loss and the saving of souls. So we pray that you would make us wise workmen in your cause. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> okay. Working the problem. Um, you know, sometimes life doesn't go the way you want it to go, and you got to work the problem. Yeah, you can't run from them. <laughs> so what did Ellen White do? What should the church do? What, what did we do? What should we have done? Et cetera, et cetera, in dealing with the Kellogg situation. Well, <clears throat> the first thing that would have been good would have been to spot it when it first came up. If you go looking for, um, you know, hard, tangible, historic proof of the introduction of pantheism, the easiest place to say, okay, this is probably where we can call it the beginning, would have been the General Conference session of 1897. Um, comments were made there. I, believed by Kellogg and also by Wagner. I don't remember whether Prescott got in on that or not. Um, and then I haven't gone checking. You know, there, every summer there was the camp meeting circuit. And you kind of, you know, you kind of get the feeling that, okay, if the guy said this at this general conference session and two years later he said the same thing, then probably you have two summers in between where he was saying it on the camp meeting circuit. Well, those sermons and things are not as well recorded for us, so it's hard to say. Um, <clears throat> but the, f the very first thing would be to be able to spot problems when they come up. That's, that's what Ellen White most wished, I guess, or most lamented that hadn't been done, is, is catching the problem at the beginning. Just a number of statements. There's not a, a profound order to this necessarily, but each one has something to note. Scientific, spiritualistic sentiments representing the creator as an essence pervading all nature have been given to our people and have been received even by some who have had a long experience as teachers in the word of God. The results of this insidious devising will break out, what? Again and again, yes. Don't think you'll not see it. <laughs> um, we have gone actually a rather long stretch without seeing real blatant examples of it uh, until some of the more recent manifestations, shall we say. <clears throat> Right, 
right. Um, your short time would be the modern manifestation within the last 20 years. <laughs> uh, before that, before that, you know, last, I don't know, I suppose if you wanted to say really visible, probably, you know, what? Uh, I'm guessing maybe about eight to 10 years. It's been really pretty visible. It's been around before that, though. We'll cover that in session four. But anyhow. But we didn't see much of it for several decades. And so we kind of lapsed out. I'll, I'll tell you a story about that in a little bit. But I want you to notice this, that it, you know, it's again and again. Don't think it's going away. You know, when the devil's got a, a weapon that works, he doesn't, you know, why should he trade it on a new one, right? There is danger that the false sentiments expressed in the books they have been reading, and this is talking about people that go off studying and associating and reading things that they would be better off not reading, okay? There is danger the false sentiments expressed in the books they've been reading will sometimes be interwoven by our ministers, teachers, and editors with their arguments, discourses, and publications under the belief that they are the same in principle as the teachings of the Spirit of Truth. The book Living Temple is an illustration of this work, the writer of which declared in its support that its teachings were the same as those found in the writings of Mrs. White. I want you to notice that, you know. It's the same thing she says. You know, the first time I ran into anything like this was 1985 in an Adventist setting. And I, hadn't, I really didn't have a clue what it was. I said, there's something weird about that. No, 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 no. It's the same stuff you read about in mind, character, and personality. Psychology, Christian psychology. Yeah, it wasn't. <laughs> it was as snaky as a cobra, okay? But it, I, I was young and stupid, and I didn't know. I just, it was a gut level more that, that made me pull back. But anyhow, <clears throat> actually, I said 85, and I'm wrong, because the first time I actually ran into it was 1976, 1975, 76, when I was still in academy. I had uh, an academy teacher who probably without a clue what he was doing was using guided imagery. And I, I didn't even register there was a problem at that point. I didn't, didn't realize it until nine years later. Yeah, let's go on. Again and again, we should be called to meet the influence of men who are studying sciences of satanic origin through which Satan is working to make a non-entity of God and of Christ, okay? So again and again, it's going to keep coming back, uh, and we have to, have to meet this. So how do you meet it? That's kind of the, the question we want to be looking at here. The sentiments in Living Temple regarding the personality of God have been received even by men who have had a long experience in the truth. When such men consent to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we are no longer to regard the subject as a matter to be treated with the greatest delicacy. That's an important statement. That those whom we thought sound in the faith should have failed to discern the specious, deadly influence of the science of evil should alarm us as nothing else has alarmed us. 
there is a time to not deal with the greatest delicacy. But we can easily get mixed up with that. In Christ's life, there were several times when it was inappropriate to deal with the greatest delicacy. It's difficult to flip a table over delicately. <laughs> it's difficult to say, you know, you vipers, <laughs> delicately. And yet, when he pronounced the woes on the scribes and the Pharisees, you know, she says he did it with tears in his eyes. So it's real easy to read into this, you know, okay, oh, take the gloves off. Time to come out swinging. Mm, yes and no. Well, the word is double-edged sword in itself. It's true. It is something that cannot be treated as a small matter that men who have had so much light and such clear evidence as to the genuineness of the truth we hold should become unsettled and led to accept spiritualistic theories regarding the personality of God. Now, I'm going to have to make a, a quick switch here, and so you're going to lose the, the view of this. Um, but I want to read something else to you. Just a moment here. <clears throat> what um, I guess I mentioned it already, but you know we kind of have a an awkward situation in one regard because you know Ellen White clearly tells us don't read um, don't read um, Living Temple. <laughs> she says just don't touch it. She says never suffer yourself to open the the covers of a questionable book. Okay. Well, that's great advice, and I try to follow it. But it does mean you have to be a little creative to know which books are questionable. <laughs> you know? I mean, how do you know it's questionable if you haven't read it, right? And, and you're always going to come under the accusation, you know, well, how come you can criticize it? You haven't even read it, right? Well, of course I haven't read it. The Lord told me not to. <laughs> you know? So that's a good reason to have to, you know, um, give some criticism too. Um, I am having a technical problem right here, and I'm not seemingly going to be able to find what I want to find you, so I will just have to tell you about it, I guess. Um, <clears throat> there we go. That's what I wanted. Um, now we can get somewhere. This is a quotation I would have liked to get in there, and I just didn't, so I just thought of it. Now I want to get it here. <clears throat> it gives you a little idea of the tone of some of what these guys were saying, okay? Ellen White writing, she says, I am instructed to say the sentiments of those who are searching for advanced scientific ideas are not to be trusted. Such representations as the following are made. Quoting now, this is the nonsense stuff, okay? She's quoting it. The Father is as the light invisible. The Son 
is as the light embodied. The spirit is the light shed abroad. What's that mean? <laughs> it sounds profound. It says nothing. Here's another one. The father is like the dew, invisible vapor. The son is like the dew, gathered in beauteous form. The spirit is like the dew, fallen to the seat of life. Eh? <laughs> Here's her comment. Um, oh, no, one more. This is another representation. The father is like the invisible vapor. The son is like the leaden cloud. The spirit is rain fallen and working in refreshing power. Eh? <laughs> okay. All these spiritualistic representations are simply nothingness. They are imperfect, untrue. They weaken, excuse me, weaken and diminish the majesty, majesty, I can't talk here, which no earthly likeness can, can be compared to. God cannot be compared with the things his hands have made. These are mere earthly things suffering under the curse of God because of the sins of man. The Father cannot be described by the things of earth. The Father is all the fullness of the Godhead bodily and is invisible to mortal sight. Leave it there. <laughs> she didn't say that. The last comment was mine. Okay. The reference on that one? Hmm, that would be Special Testimonies Series B, number 7, page 62. Okay, um, I want to read you one more. I just uh, let's see. <clears throat> this is uh, hmm. Um, I, I feel torn in even sharing these things, okay? Because right now I'm going to give you an example from E.J. Wagner. I like a lot of Wagner stuff. He wrote some very good stuff. He was a man that God used, right? He was human. And one thing you learn when you study history is that humans are a very undependable lot. <laughs> and they're going to let you down, okay? So I don't, I'm not trying to, you know, run Wagner down here, but, you know, let the record, let the record stand, right? Spiritual things, this is Wagner speaking here, spiritual things are spiritually discerned. If we were there at the side of the throne in heaven, he's talking about, some would see the river and some would not see it. He who has his eyesight trained to discern spiritual things would see the stream flowing. The man who is not spiritual would not see anything. One might say, oh, I see the bright and sparkling water flowing from the throne of God. And another would reply, I cannot see it. Did you ever hear people say, I cannot see it? When a man cannot see, what is the matter with him? He is blind. Then I counsel thee to buy of me gold, try in the fire, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see and not be blind. What's he doing? Basically, he's, and it goes on from there, but you know, he's, one of the things that was common in 
this era and these examples is, is blurring the lines and spreading something from a metaphorical understanding into a, a literal understanding and back and forth, okay? And, and, and the world reality doesn't work quite that way, okay? There are differences between metaphors and reality, okay? <clears throat> Another example. Oh, I delight in drinking water, as I never have before. I delight in bathing. Why, I come right to the throne of God. A man may get righteousness in bathing when he knows where the water comes from and recognizes the source. The world is a good deal nearer the gospel than it knows anything about when it says that cleanliness is next to godliness. Ah, but cleanliness is godliness. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Quoting the Bible. Christ loved the church and gave himself for it that he might purify it and cleanse it by a, quotes, water bath in the word. That's the way it reads in the Danish. And that is literal too. Just bathe in the word. That is not figurative. That is not sentimental. God wants his people to live now as seeing the invisible so that they will walk in the sight of the river of God and drink from the throne of God and, they will, and all they do will be eating and drinking in his presence. Hello, what? Do you see what, what's going on here? You know, this, this is weird mixing, mishmashing, what do they call it, a mashup, right? Computer or something, it's a weird mashup of stuff, okay? Now, why it says nature is not God and never was God? The voice of nature testifies of God, declaring his glory, but nature itself is not God. Okay. So once you have spotted the enemy, you attack. But how? And that's, I want to spend a fair amount of time on this. I said before that there was this very awkward situation on many of these issues that divided the medical workers from the ministerial workers and neither side was neither side was right on and Ellen White was always in the middle trying to wrestle these guys back into line <clears throat> some issues were more important than others you can't don't try and make any you know specific moral equivalency and say well well the general conference was just as wrong as Dr. Kellogg well Yes and no, but there's no in that too, okay? Um, excuse me. Uh, I'm keeping the wrong button. There we go. That's where I was. Okay. Um, <clears throat> but Ellen White would write these letters trying to help both sides of this thing, this, is, this issue. And, and I want you to see this here. Um, let me make sure I'm in the right spot there. Okay, yes, okay. Dr. Kellogg. You may tell me that you do not believe the messages I send you, but I know that this is not true. You know of the experience that God has given me in his work. You cannot deny that he has led and sustained me. You may close your eyes and ears to the messages that God sends, but after all, you do believe them. And you may depend on this, 
a mother could not hold more firmly to a child that she dearly loves than I shall hold to you. I expect to see you engaged in the work that God has given you, and I pray for you constantly in private prayer and at family worship. Sometimes I'm awake in the night and rising, I walk the room praying, Oh, Lord, hold Dr. Kellogg fast. Do not let him go. Keep him steadfast. Anoint his eyes with the heavenly eye staff that he may see all things clearly. Last night, after going to rest, I wrestled in earnest prayer for you until 11 o'clock. Then I slept until 3. I then rose and dressed and continued my prayer that God would draw back the curtain and let you see where you stand. I have felt that it was of little use for me to write more to you, for the many letters that I have written do not seem to have that, and there's probably a word missing, you know, that effect or that result, which I so much hoped they would accomplish. And yet my burden does not leave me, because you cannot see yourself as God sees you. She wrote letter after letter after letter to this guy. And you know, sometimes in order to document a point or, or you know, demonstrate something or prove it, we quote little sections out of these letters. I've never measured it, but I, I, I'd bet you that over half of the content of those letters is pleading redemptive material rather than identification of sin material. <clears throat> this morning I received a letter from you. I would encourage you in the efforts that you are making to press into the light. We pray for you that you will work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God which works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. I would not say one word to destroy hope. I know that the enemy will work diligently to dishearten right effort. After bearing testimonies of warning to Dr. Kellogg, I would weep as if my heart would break. Night after night upon awaking, I would pray for him. I hoped and prayed that he would come out into the clear light. Thus the burden of his soul rested upon me after I returned from the Oakland General Conference. That would have been the General Conference of 1903, the one that we talked about before. One reason this, you know, I mean, every soul is a soul to save, right? But I think it's fair to say that Ellen White felt Kellogg's situation more than probably any other with the exception of her son Edson. She wrote very similar letters to her son Edson because he was not always where he ought to be. But one of the reasons that it was so forceful in her mind was that she'd made a promise. Kellogg's mother on her deathbed extracted a promise from Ellen White that she would do everything possible to see John saved. So she had a promise to keep. She worked hard at it. <clears throat> this is a fascinating little story. This is Stanford P.S. Edwards, again. I quoted him last time. He's the guy that A.H. Lewis came into his classroom, right, if you remember that quotation. At the General Conference of 1903, 
Um, let me just paint a little picture of that conference for you. Because again, I want you to understand how far this issue of the pantheism went before it was largely addressed. Okay. So this is 1903. This is a year after Living Temple has been written. And at the general conference session, there were a lot of issues, not one word of which had anything to do with pantheism. But the biggest issue of the day was the rewriting of the general conference constitution. When Ellen White had returned from Australia in 1900, she had called for a reorganization of the denominational corporate structure. And that had taken place at the General Conference of 1901. Um, it's really fascinating. You don't have time to wade through all the details. That's when they injected the Union Conference level of leadership. Up until that point, you'd had the general conference with immediate supervision over a local conference. And that meant that the guys in the general conference were trying to run things in South Africa and in Australia and whatnot. And it was just like way beyond them, okay? And that was causing a lot of problems. <clears throat> and so they said, no, that's, we've, got to, we've got to change this. And it was fascinating because Ellen White said, we have to do two things. She says, we have to strengthen the general conference. Okay, that's easy to understand. We strengthen the general conference. And she says, we have to decentralize and we have to push the decision making out to the field. She actually told the story, she said, two stories. She says, on my way to the general conference, just near, coming to the, the general conference session, I stopped in such and such a place and I was looking around and I said, why don't you do this? I think it was build something. I don't, know, I don't know if she even says what it was, but you know, it was probably build a building or something like that. So why don't you do this? And the people there told me, that's exactly what we want to do, but we have to have authorization from our board. Where's your board? In Battle Creek. And she said, have you no one here with common sense? <laughs> if not, by all means, transport them. <laughs> I love that. I mean, I mean, that's, oh man, whack. <laughs> it's like I used to have knees, but they just got cut off. You know? <laughs> okay. Get somebody with some brains on the, on the ground here. You know, Don't wait for a board that's hundreds of miles away. So she was saying this, you need to shove the decision making out to the, the, the grassroots, the ground level. And you have to make the general conference stronger. And nobody knew what to do with that because the entire concept of the strength of the general conference was its minute control over everything, micromanagement of everything that moved in the world. How do you make it stronger and cut these guys free to do what they want? Completely dumbfounded. And Ellen White called for that at the beginning of the general conference in 1901. And she says, I don't know how we're going to do this. I don't know how we're going to do this. But this is what God wants. Well, in 1901, <clears throat> what happened is a, a concept um, was developed. It was, they used the term representation. And I really don't, boy. I have some books over there if you're interested. I have a whole chapter on this. But, <laughs> but um, I, I don't have time to go through this all. But, but they rewrote the Constitution, okay? They, they 
dramatically changed the constitution of the, of the denomination. And when it was done, Ellen White said, what has God wrought? At the beginning of this conference, I had no idea how we could do what God wanted. But this is, this is a wonderful thing. This, this is, what was it? She said something about the stately steppings of, the, of Jehovah has been in our aisles or something like that. You know, it's just, God has blessed. This is a marvelous thing. Okay, well, <clears throat> one of the things that was done, wow, I don't have time to explain this, uh, <laughs> was a change to the General Conference Committee. Okay? And there were philosophical reasons for this, and I, I, I can't go through all of those, but it has to do with the structure of the whole denomination where authority was from the ground up flowing upwards. Okay? And the role of any level of organization was to help the one below it. Okay? Let me just paint that picture really quickly. So here's a Christian, and he wants to do what Jesus wants him to do, and so he goes about doing good, and he accomplishes what he can, and that's nice. He's doing his Christian duty. But there's a Christian over here, and he's going about, and they're both going about doing good, and that's good. And then one day, they realize that if they kind of get together and make a church with five of them now, they can do more than they could singly. And so by combining talents and resources and such things, this local church can now accomplish more than five local Christians could do on their own. Cool. What is the church doing? Helping the local Christians accomplish what they do individually. Well, then one day they all wake up and they say, oh, look, there's more churches out here. <laughs> there's one here and here and here and here. And they all realize, wowsies, if we all kind of get together and we work together as individual churches, we can accomplish more. We could maybe pool our financial resources and we could do this like this really big evangelistic thing that none of us could afford by ourselves. So you have a conference, a union or a local conference. What does the local conference do? The local conference is made up of the churches and its sole function is to help the churches do what churches do. The conference is not an authority placed over the churches to tell them what to do. The conference has no existence of its own at all. It is nothing more than the assembly of the churches working together to do what churches do. And they took this all the way up to the top, okay? And so what this culminated in was the idea that you have a general conference executive committee, 25 members. And they said, this executive committee is not there to tell everybody else what to do. It's there to help them do what they do. So how does the executive committee help a conference or a union conference do whatever it is that union conferences are supposed to do? How does, it, how does the general conference do this. And it came down to this. It does it by being of service. So the idea was our, our general conference officers and executive committee have to be the most talented people that we have. And their job is to take whatever their expertise is and help make sure that the conferences, you know, help them in every way they can. So 
we need a committee that we need people that are involved in education. We need people that are involved in publishing and corporate work and medical work and evangelistic work and whatever else. And so they actually, now this is hilarious, in a warped, twisted sense. There was already by this time so much of a division between the ministerial workers and the physicians that they said, we want to have six physicians on our general conference executive committee. And the ministers all said, we don't know who to vote for. We don't know who to vote for. We don't even know six physicians. And so what they actually did, they wrote it in the Constitution. They said, six positions in the General Conference Committee will be filled by the Medical Missionary and Benevolent Association. They had to, I mean, they, they didn't even know who to elect. So they had to hand that over entirely, and they chose the physicians to serve on the General Conference Committee. And then they elected, you know, so many guys from education, so many guys from publishing, so many guys from evangelism, so many whatever else there is, okay? And so the General Conference Executive Committee was like a scale model of the church. It represented everything that the church was supposed to do. And the idea was to have the, the, the best guys, the smartest guys, and ladies too, you know, that, that know what they're doing. And their function is to help go out with their expertise and just help. Their function is not to say, this is the new program, everybody do this. They're not telling anybody what to do. They're helping them do what they do anyhow. That was the theory. Now, that was 1901. A question came up on this executive committee. This is interesting, you don't have to hurry. <laughs> they made the committee self-organizing, which is to say that at the general conference session, they would elect 25 individuals and say, you are our executive committee. You guys go off in a room and you figure out who your chairman is and who your treasurer is and who your secretary is. You guys figure it out. Well, what that did, I don't know, I'm wasting too much time on this. <laughs> what that did is that it opened up a possibility for Kellogg to take over the church. Um, and sometime in the fall of 02, I don't know exactly, uh, A.T. Jones was a member of the committee, and he came in with a suggestion. He said, <clears throat> because... The work of evangelism is, is, is the core, the heart, the soul of the church. And, and because international missions, foreign missions are, are expanding so rapidly, we need the very best talent possible on that department. And so I would nominate Elder A.G. Daniels to lead out in international foreign mission work. But it would just be criminal to ask him to do that as well as being chairman of the executive committee, i.e. general conference president, at the same time. And they came very close to having that motion pass. Um, he had, they had six votes from the physicians, right? There were only 25. You have to get 13, so he needed seven more votes. They would have had Jones, would have had Wagner. That would have given them eight votes. They needed five more after that. Could they convince five more people? You know? Well, it didn't work. It did not work. They, the, the goal was to put A.T. Jones as basically the general conference president. 
Jones at that point was basically a, a Kellogg puppet, okay, you know, pulling the strings, okay. <clears throat> it scared the socks off the general conference guys. Understandably, you can kind of see why. It would have been a disaster. So 1903, they rewrote the Constitution to take away that possibility. You know, in a certain sense, I, philosophically speaking, I kind of regret that they did that. I don't know. It's hard to say what would have happened otherwise. The system worked. It prevented any problem. You know, Jones didn't become the General Conference president. Okay, the system worked, but it was too dicey. And so they changed it in a way that consolidated control in the hands of the ministry. It's really what happened. Okay. If you stop and think about it, a general conference session, the largest percentage of delegates are ministers. And you know, if if I asked you right now, say there's a, a an opening that's we need to fill an opening with somebody, and I ask you, you know, who will you vote for to fill this position? Well, you know, you can really only vote confidently for people that you know. And if you're a minister, you're going to know ministers. And they didn't know physicians. And they didn't even many times know that many laymen, you know. And so it, it's, it has concentrated that power, that influence. I'm not saying it's been, all, it's been abused. I'm just saying it's it concentrated. And with that, they said, we need to bring all these organizations and make them a part of the conference. And that was the one thing that Kellogg hated and had been saying for years, they're going to try and take the, the sanitarium away. The sanitarium was owned by the Medical Missionary Association. In 1903, they said, we want that to be a part of the Michigan Conference. And Kellogg said, you ain't taking my sanitarium. He was president of the Medical Missionary Association. Okay? He says, you ain't taking my sanitarium. And bear in mind that Kellogg, through the Medical Missionary Association, employed twice as many people as, as all the workers for the church. He had twice as many employees as the, as the general conference all the way down. So all this was going on in 1903. Okay? <clears throat> Pantheism had not been an issue at the general conference of 1903. This is on the last day of 1903. Dr. Edwards says, I met Sarah McEndifer, Ellen White's assistant, in the Pacific Press business office, and she said that, come on, there we go, there we go, <clears throat> and she said that she and mother, a lot of the workers that had worked with Ellen White called their mother, right, she said that she and mother were taking the evening train to St. Helena, and she wanted Dr. and Mrs. Paulson and me and my wife to accompany her. We were to get on the train at Fruitvale, a few miles from Oakland, so no one would know we were going. It's interesting. We followed instructions, and when we entered the car, found very few passengers. We sat down across the aisle from Sister White. She smiled and looked out the window. <laughs> Not a word was said until after we got off the train at St. Helena. Then from Sarah came a statement that Mother wished to see us at 10 o'clock the next morning at Elmshaven. We took the sanitarium bus to the sanitarium in deep thought. After being assigned to our rooms, Dr. Paulson called me and said for me to find a quiet place where we could talk. We went outdoors and up the hill until we found a secluded spot, and then he asked simply two questions. What? Why? 
we got down and prayed, and our answer was, wait. The next morning, we four, the two doctors and their wives, walked down the hill to Elmshaven, where Sarah was waiting. We were taken up to the study, and Mother met us with a smile. After we were seated, she started on a most interesting story about the events in her life and our lives with which she was conversant. For an hour, she entertained us, but not a word about the message. Finally, she turned to me and said, I love Dr. Kellogg. He may be lost. I hope and pray not. If he is lost, let him go with you, brethren, standing by with your hands on his shoulders, trying to save him. She then sweetly dismissed us. And Dr. Paulson and I walked up the hill arm in arm. We had a mission and a commission. We tried to carry it out. We made some mistakes in our methods. Sister White reproved us. We tried again. I have her letters of reproof and correction. Very precious. The last time I met Dr. Kellogg was at a dinner in the Loma Linda Sanitarium dining room. A group of us gathered around him. There was George Thomason, D.D. Comstock, Frank Abbott, Ben Culver, and myself, all doctor friends. We said in parting, are you not coming with us? He answered after a minute of thought, perhaps I am nearer with you than you know. And so he was left with God with our hands on his shoulders. <clears throat> okay, well, a couple of comments about this. People ask me, so I'll tell you. I'd love to see Dr. Kellogg in heaven. Frankly, I don't expect that I will. But, you know, God's, a, God's an opportunist. And if he could find a way to satisfy the universe that Dr. Kellogg should be there, I'm, I'd love to sit down and talk to him. <laughs> I don't see that there was that kind of a change that would, to my mind, make it likely that he'll be among the saved. But I leave that in God's hands. It's not my issue. But this is the way you attack. It did not work successfully with Dr. Kellogg. <clears throat> now, the other doctor here, this was Edwards, but the other doctor was David Paulson. This is April, late April, 1903. October of 1903 was the Autumn Council meeting back at Tacoma Park and the iceberg vision and the whole thing. Okay, I'd probably have just enough time to tell that, so let's go ahead. <clears throat> um, at, the, um, at the Autumn Council, Kellogg and a bunch of other doctors showed up, determined to ram Living Temple through, get some statement of, of approval from the General Conference Committee. Everybody else was just, they just wanted to try and get some normal business done. The, the General Conference session had been all twisted up into a knot over the whole rewriting of the Constitution. Oh, I should drop in one more line too, and that is that 
before the, the General Conference of 1903, Ellen White made a very interesting statement in a letter to a Judge Jesse Arthur. She says, the outcome of the last General Conference session, that would be the 1901, right? You remember at the end of the 1901, she was ecstatic. She says, you know, what hath God wrought, okay? Almost two years later, she wrote, she says, the outcome of the last General Conference session has been the greatest sorrow of my life. The Constitution had been rewritten, but constitutions do not change hearts. And the steps that might have been taken in conversion and decency were not. And so we had a new constitution with a new structure, but we kind of had old wine and new wineskin. If that makes sense. So she said it was the greatest sorrow of my life. Well, anyhow, <clears throat> but the 1903 conference, they hadn't gotten a lot of normal stuff done because there had been all this wrangling over the Constitution and the ownership of institutions and things of that nature. And so all the GC guys, they came to this autumn council and said, oh, we just, please, we just, we've got to get the normal stuff done. We've got to, yeah, got to make some progress here. And along come Kellogg and all his buddies, and they're bam, 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 you know, we're going to get this living temple thing just rammed through. And they were really putting the pressure on. Daniels was functioning as the chair, and he was just taking a beating all day long on this thing. And he didn't know what to do. He didn't know what to say. There was a motion on the floor to approve of Living Temple. And at the end of the day, he just tabled it. He says, I'm not going to put it up for a vote. I don't know what the vote would have been, but it was a mess. So he says, nah, we ain't voting on this today. He went to walk home. It was a few blocks from the meeting house where they were to what, known, what was known as the Carroll House, the kind of a hotel they were staying in. And I think he just wanted to walk home by himself. But Dr. David Paulson, the man who was told to keep a hand on his shoulder, went walking home with him. <coughs> this would be one of the mistakes that Paulson made. Because they got to Carroll House and they stood outside under a street lamp and Paulson was arguing strongly and eloquently for Living Temple. And at the end of the argument, he you know, stands and talking to Kellogg and he just thumped him on the chest. You know, thump, 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 I don't want to do that. My Paulson, Daniels, did I say Kellogg? Yeah, talking to, to Daniels. And Paulson just goes, bump, 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 you know, thumps him on the chest. And he says, if you don't see the light in this, one of these days God will roll you in the dust and you'll find another man leading his, you know, the Lord's work. Well, I would class that as one of the mistakes that Paulson made. Daniels was probably a little distressed and he walked up the stairs into the house. And according to his account, written 30 years later, which, you know, come on, he's human, it's the next guy and things tend to get a little exaggerated over time, but anyhow. He says he walked to the door and he was met by somebody there and said, Elder Daniels, deliverance has come. We have this envelope from Ellen White. And they opened it up and that's where the story about the ship striking the iceberg. Meet it. You know. And she tells how, I don't know, some days before the Lord woke her up 
midnight and said, get that stuff in the mail. Get it ready. Write it out. And if, you know, a lot of it had been written before. She didn't know what to do with it. It was just sitting to one side. You know? She says, get that in the mail. And it's, it's, she gives quite an account of it. It's really interesting. Um, she, she had some things she had to get written out, and she finished it all up. She's writing like mad, and why not? They get it all jammed in the thing. She handed it to some guy and says, get this down to the, you know, catch the train type of thing. And he goes on his horse or whatever it was, or bicycle or something. I don't know. And he gets down there just in time to, yay, take it on the train, go. You know. So it gets to Washington, D.C. just in time. And that saved us. <laughs> Those, those letters saved us. <clears throat> but seems like I lost one little, little element of my thought there. I'm sorry about that. But but those letters those letters saved us and stopped the progression of acceptance of those doctrinal elements. But they did nothing to restore the bonds of fellowship. Does that make sense? Do you know what a Pyrrhic victory is? Pyrrhic victory? A little history thing going on for you here. The Third Punic War. <laughs> A guy by the name of Pyrrhus was, was the Carthaginian general, and he invaded Rome, uh, the Roman Empire. And he rampaged up and down um, the Italian peninsula, winning battle after battle and losing so many men in the process that he lost the war. That's a Pyrrhic victory, when you win the battle and lose the war. We're still here. We still have lessons to learn. Scientific, spiritualistic sentiments representing the Creator as an essence pervading all nature have been given to our people and have been received even by some who have had long experience as teachers in the Word of God. The results of this insidious devising will break out again and again. We've read that before. There are many for whom special efforts will have to be put forth to free them from this spacious deception. I want you to notice that. It's not, it cannot be, a matter of simply cutting them off. Paulson was reclaimed. McGann, Sutherland were reclaimed. Prescott, Pretty much. <laughs> Prescott's a funny case. <laughs> they, were, they, were, they were saved. Kellogg we lost. Not too many others in, a, in an obvious way at that time. There's lessons in all that. Um, I'm worried that we have a harder task than any of us un understand. Most people don't even know there's a problem. Some people know there's a problem. 
but the solution that they might have may simply prolong a bigger problem. I don't pretend to have the actual answer. I just think I know that special efforts will have to be put forth. And when we get down the road another couple of lessons or sessions or whatever they are, you'll start seeing how hard that's going to be. So it's something to pray about. <coughs> Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we thank you for, oh, what? The privilege of being involved in something important. The privilege of seeing big issues battled out on the stage of your church. Lord, we would be wise. We would learn lessons from former ages. We would, as best we can, find ways to uh, not just win an argument, but win a victory. We pray this in your name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.